the Bible, raise your hand, and these guys will be glad to give you one. Take your Bible and turn to the book of Acts. The book of Acts, chapter 4. It's an incredible day and a thought that throughout our world, this day, believers in Jesus Christ are celebrating his resurrection from the dead. Non-believers don't really know what to make of it. They don't, many don't believe that it happened, that it wasn't the truth. Just kind of another fable that religious people created to give them a crutch to lean on. What's so exciting about the fact he is risen, throughout the history of the church, the early church, you encountered another believer, you would say, he is risen. And their response would be, he is risen indeed. Because that is what we have to hang on to. That is the great hope of the church. That is history. Now, I could spend all of today going back and reiterating the history and even proving to you that Jesus rose from the dead. I'm not going to do that. I don't really think it's necessary. It's a great thing to do, and every believer needs to do it. It's been done many times by others much brighter than me. What I want us to do today is celebrate and think about what it is that we say we believe. What is it that sets Jesus Christ apart? We know it's his resurrection from the dead. Physically, he walked out of that tomb. Physically, he removed the stone that had him blocked. Physically, he conquered death. Not an imagined nation, not an apparition, not a spiritual awakening, not waking up from swooning. He was dead, and he rose from the dead. For that reason, many others, <coughs> but because he rose from the dead, physically conquered death, he's exactly who he said he was. He is the resurrection and the life. He is the means by which I and you and every other human being can have eternal life. You'll notice the title of today's message is Resurrection Boldness. What is it that God wants from us? We're going to look at an event in the life of Peter and John, the early church, and see that they had become bold. What changed them? Particularly Peter. What changed him was he finally believed that Jesus rose from the dead. He saw the resurrected Christ. It changed him into this incredible, bold preacher of the gospel and leader of the church. The very thing Jesus told him he needed him to do. Feed my sheep. Tend my sheep. Feed my sheep. Don't just say you love me, Peter. Do it. You see, the difference between Jesus Christ and every other religious leader that's ever lived, every religious leader in some way or another talks about doing good being righteous, inhabiting eternity, going to heaven or nirvana or whatever they, you might believe. They talk about it. They articulate it. And in many cases, some of the things they teach are good. There is truth to be found in many things. The difference between Jesus Christ and all others is that because he is God, not just another man, because he is God, he not only talks about those things, he enables us to have them, to do them. Jesus can give me eternal life. Others can only promise it. He literally gives it as a free gift for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. John MacArthur has said it this way. Christians preach an exclusive Christ in an inclusive age. See, what's happened to the church, even in the United States, is that we bought into a mentality that it's not Jesus alone. It's Jesus or 
whatever you choose. Just have faith. Jesus said, I am the way, not I am a way. I am the way. Greek definite article, there is no other. He alone can offer what every human being needs. Payment for our sin debt that we owe. I owe it. You owe it. Adam owed it. Abraham owed it. Peter, John, the disciples, every human being that's ever existed owes a debt they cannot pay because of sin. Jesus paid the debt, said, hanging on the cross, it is finished. By the way, it's a Greek term meaning a debt paid in full, an accounting term. He paid the debt so that I, by faith, repentance, can accept his free gift and be given not just eternal life, but peace and hope in this life. So as we come to Acts chapter 4, it's about seven weeks since Jesus rose from the dead. The day of Pentecost has come. The Holy Spirit has come, as Jesus promised. 3,000 people are saved on that day and added to the church as Peter preaches this bold, incredible sermon. 3,000 men, that's just men, come to Christ that day. It's been about seven weeks. The Jewish leaders are absolutely overwhelmed with anger that these guys are preaching Jesus. So we thought we solved that problem. We crucified Jesus as a blasphemer, and now we got these clowns running around preaching that he rose from the dead, which, by the way, they never denied, never were able to disprove. They just had to deal with it. They're absolutely indignant for two reasons. One, that they're preaching to the people at all. And two, that they're preaching to them that Jesus rose from the dead. And they're boldly doing this. Here's the one thing I want you to take away from today. is what God wants for Randy Lockley and for you is to boldly live a life that preaches Jesus rose from the dead. Doesn't mean you're going to stand behind a pulpit and preach to a crowd. But your life preaches every day something, one way or the other. Do you believe, as Jesus asked, after he said, I'm the resurrection and the life, he who lives and believes in me will never die. His next statement was, do you believe this? And if you believe it, he said to them, now I need you to go spread the gospel. What does he say to us 2,000 years later? The exact same thing. I need you to go into all the world and make disciples, learner, followers of me. So here's the setting in Acts chapter 4. Look at chapter 3, verse 11, if you would. Now, the, now as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, chapter 3, verse 11, all the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. I want you to see the picture. All the people are running to Peter and John at Solomon's porch. As they preach in Jerusalem, they're greatly amazed. Because what's happened, we're not going to read it, but what's happened is a man who was lame from birth, his whole life been laying there begging. He comes up to Peter and John, he's asking for money. Peter says, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give to you. Rise and walk in the name of Jesus Christ. And the man gets up who's never walked in his life. And he gets up and the Bible says he's leaping and jumping and praising God. I bet you would be too, wouldn't you? Never walked. Never stood, and in the name of Jesus Christ, he's healed. Now, if you were one of the people, wouldn't you be amazed? So they're flocking to hear these guys, Peter and John. They're greatly amazed, all the people. Now we come to chapter 4. you got the mental setting. Verse 1, now as they spoke to the people, got the picture, 
the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people, and they preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. They laid hands on them, and they put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, you ought to circle that word, highlight it, write it on the person next to you. However, many of those who heard the word of Peter and John believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. I want you to see the resurrection boldness of Peter and John, specifically Peter. Number one, boldly preaching in the name of Jesus Christ. Boldly preaching that name. 3,000 are saved at Pentecost. 5,000 are saved here, and that's just men. So you're probably looking more like 15 to 20,000 people. It's never mentioned again in the book of Acts after this. A number is never mentioned. From now on, all it says is multitudes were coming. Multitudes were coming. So many they couldn't count them because they boldly preached Jesus' name. Notice the result. It's really interesting. As they boldly preach Jesus' name, there are two results. They get arrested and thousands are saved. Don't miss the irony of that. There's a reason it's here. You're boldly preaching Jesus' name. Do you expect to end up in jail? In one sense, no. In another sense, they should have expected it because what did Jesus tell them? The time is going to come when they're going to kick you out of the synagogue, which they have already are doing. They're going to arrest you, and they're going to say they're doing it in the name of God. They should have expected it and probably did. But at this point, they're no longer terrified. They're no longer afraid. They're boldly preaching Jesus' name, and the result is they get arrested. But notice the other result. Thousands of people are born again because they didn't fear getting arrested. They said, we're just going to preach Jesus' name. In seven weeks from the time Jesus is crucified, that's where we are. Seven weeks, this band has gone from 120 people to thousands, thousands, because they boldly preach the name of Jesus. One of the things that's killing the church in America, which is on decline, by the way, numerically not growing, is that we're afraid to boldly preach the name of Jesus. We don't want to insult anybody. We don't want to talk about hell. We don't want to say he's the only way. We want to be inclusive. Jesus said, I came to bring a sword. You need to hate your mom and dad. What do you mean by that? you got to have a priority. And it has to be me and everything else. If it's not me and everything else, then you're not on God's team. you got to make a decision. They've made their decision. They boldly preach it. Secondly, they boldly defend Jesus' name. Look at verse 5. Came to pass on the next day. They've been arrested. All the leaders come together. These are all the Jewish leaders, all the religious elite. Uh, verse 5, it came to pass. They got, they're all together. We're going to skip some of this. They got the high priest. They all get together. They, they bring Peter and John. Verse 7, they set them in the middle. Now notice verse 7. Very important. They set them in their midst. They asked them, Peter and John, by what power or by what name have you done this? I love this question. They're talking about healing the lame beggar. By the way, you read the context, you pay attention. He's there too. You'll see in a moment. He's there. So they probably point to him and say, by whose name or what power have you done this? These are the religious elite, their leaders. Shouldn't they be happy that the poor guy can walk? What's their concern? Look, man, you're doing miracles. We can't have this. And you know why? We saw it earlier. What are all the people doing? They're flocking to Peter and John. If they're flocking to Peter and John, who are they flocking away from? These guys. Because Peter and John have a message that will change their lives. It sure changed this guy's life, didn't it? He can walk now. And by the way, we 
talked about earlier, he's not just walking, he's leaping and praising whom? The scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. Who's he praising? By the way, it's not Peter and John. Don't miss that. Not about them. They were the instrument. They were the tool. But who's the lame guy praising? God. Because God is the one who gave him the ability to walk and changed his life. So they say, by what power or whose name or in whose authority? In other words, we haven't given you authority to do this. What are you doing? Look at Peter's answer in verse 8. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. By the way, you ought to circle that. That's the key. You're not filled with the Holy Spirit. You're probably not going to do this because you're going to be in the flesh and you're going to say, well, well, I got to do something. Get out of this. Filled with the Holy Spirit, he said, rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone, nor is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Who is it that's speaking these words? We're all together. Who is that? Peter. Tell me, seven weeks prior to this, what did Peter say about Jesus? I don't know him. He was terrified of a little servant girl at a fire and cursed and said, not only do I not know him, no, I don't know him. He was terrified. Does he sound terrified here to you? Notice what he says to these guys, understanding they're Jewish leaders. First thing he says, I'll, I'll tell you by whose name, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Was there any mistake who he was talking about? He uses his name, Jesus, his title, Messiah, and where he was from, so we don't know who he's talking about. And if you, when he mentioned Jesus is the Messiah, what do you think these Jewish leaders were thinking? Son of a gun, I thought we got rid of that problem. What are we going to do now? Because everybody's flocking to hear this. We can't have this. I thought we got rid of that problem. But notice the next thing Peter says to him: Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom what? You crucified. In other words, he's saying, yeah, the Romans did it, but who's culpable? Who's guilty? Who pushed the Romans to kill him? You did. You did. You are guilty. At this point, what do you think Peter might have been thinking was going to happen to him? Jesus had told him, you want to follow me? Take up your cross daily and follow me. What did they have to be expecting would happen to them? The same thing that happened to Jesus. But it doesn't stop them from being bold, does it? Why? Because they believe in the resurrected Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Notice what he says about him, some unique things. Boldly defending his name. Boldly defending his name. Look at verse 10. Well, I don't want you to miss this. His unique power. Unique power. Verse 10. But it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel, by the, by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, this man stands here before you. Whole. Whole. Two things I want you to see about that, this unique power. Number one, at this point, Peter has done this. He was the instrument through whom God healed him. And the people are flocking to him. If he was not filled with the Holy Spirit, and he didn't have his proper priorities, what might Peter do? What might he say at this point? Which is, by the way, what faith healers say today. I did it. I did it. Who do you say did it? Peter didn't heal anybody. And nobody that's ever walked this planet healed anybody except God. Jesus Christ healed the man 
Use Peter to do it, no question. But he did it. Jesus Christ healed this man. The res- Notice how he describes Jesus in verse 10. It will be known to you all by the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, the resurrected Jesus Christ. He rose from the dead because he's God. His unique power. Notice verse 11. He also has a unique place. He quotes their scripture and says, Jesus is the cornerstone. He's a stone you rejected, but he's become the chief cornerstone. In other words, he's the only one of those. There was a Jewish tradition when they were building Solomon's temple that they all it was done, they cut the stones in silence, brought them and put them in place. And they brought this one and they weren't ready for it. They put it aside. They didn't know what it was. It rolled to the bottom of the Kidron Valley and they got through and they were looking for the one stone, the cornerstone to put in place that everything would perfectly fit off of. They couldn't find it. They thought, well, they said, well, and then they remembered the one they, and they had rolled it. They went and got it, brought it up and put it in place. They had, it was the stone that was rejected, but it was the stone that made everything fit. Whether it's true or not, we don't know. But what we do know is that he's quoting scripture here to remind them Jesus is the fulfillment of that prophecy. The temple is his. Everything fits because of him. And today, what does the Bible say about the temple of God? You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God indwells us as believers because of the person of Jesus Christ. We are his body. We are his temple. We are his bride. We are his church. Everything fits because he's the stone they rejected, but he rose from the dead. And their rejection conquered their rejection, conquered death, conquered it all because he's the chief cornerstone, a unique place. But in verse 12, he has a unique name. And here's the essence of Christianity and the thing we have to boldly preach. There is no name other than Jesus Christ by which a man can be saved, nor is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men. That's saying it two ways. The same thing, two ways. Under heaven, given among men, by which we must be saved. It's really interesting. The word saved and the verb made whole, describing the lame guy, is the exact same verb. The point is, whether it's physical healing or spiritual healing, who's the only one that can provide it? Jesus Christ of Nazareth. There is no other name. There never has been and there never will be. Given among men, whereby we must be made whole spiritually, and ultimately, physically. Sometimes he heals in this life, but the normative case is you're healed in the next life when you get a new body with no more pain, sorrow, or issues. But the key is, spiritually, where are you in this life? And in verse 13, he has unique ability. When he saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled. Boy, I love the end of verse 13. Every time I read it, I get choked up. They realized they had been with Jesus. I love this because this is who I am and probably who you are. They looked at Peter and John and said, these guys are ignorant. They just, they've never been to rabbinical school. It's two, for, two words that are used there. It's really interesting. One is they've never, they're uneducated. They haven't been to our schools. They didn't go to the right schools. And then the other one is they're untrained. And the idea there is they ain't got any culture. I love that one because that's who we are. They don't fit into our society like they should And yet everybody's flocking to them and they're marveling that these uneducated, ignorant, uncultured men are able to mesmerize the people. Why? 
Then they realize it. You see the end of verse 13? Please don't miss that. What did they realize? It wasn't Peter and John. Who was it? They'd been with Jesus. They'd been with Jesus. What do I want people to realize about me when I talk to them? What do you want people to realize when they interact and they get to know you? Hopefully you want them to realize you've been with Jesus. That it's not a game, not a religion. It's your life. He's your life because of who he is. And then look at number three. They're boldly glorifying Jesus' name. I'm not going to read all this, but verses 14 through 22, it's almost comical. Look at verse 14. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, in other words, the lame guy was standing there, they could say nothing against it. In other words, what is the Bible telling you there? They couldn't deny the guy had been healed, right? You can't say anything about it because the people are flocking to him. They couldn't deny the miracle. So you know what their solution is? I love this. You read on through, we're not going to take time to read it. You know what their solution is? They threatened them. They said, now look, boys, don't talk about this Jesus anymore. Don't do it. Don't talk about this Jesus anymore. Look at verse 19. What's the first word? There it is. My favorite word in the Bible. They said, don't you talk about Jesus anymore. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it's right in the sight of God, listen to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we've seen and heard. In other words, this is correct civil disobedience. What are they saying to these guys? You're going to have to make a decision. You're going to have to judge, but we're just telling you we're not going to do that. We can't. There's certain things we cannot not do, and we cannot not talk about Jesus. Matter of fact, we don't talk about him. The rocks and everything else are going to talk about him because he created the universe. We are going to talk about Jesus, and they don't know what to do because they got the people on their side. You know what the picture is here? It's very important. I read an article about it this week, about this inclusiveness, and supposedly from guys that are smart and intellectual, and I'm reading, I'm thinking, boy, we're talking about ignorant and untrained. And these are guys with degrees in religion and stuff, about how Jesus was a great leader, but he wasn't the only answer. You know what these guys are saying? The, the lame man is standing there, they can't do anything about it. They threaten them, and they realize we can't stop them from talking about Jesus. Their answer is, don't confuse us with the truth. Don't confuse us with the truth. We want to believe what we want to believe, and you have the right to do that. But if you have a brain, you ought to examine it. And if you're sitting here today and you're skeptical about this Jesus is the only way stuff, I challenge you to check it out. Don't just say that's the way it is. Check it out. Is he the only way? I say to you he is. He said he was. The Bible says he is. History proves. But I challenge you. Check it out. I ask you to call me. I'd love to sit down and talk with you about it. Why? Because if you deny Jesus is the only way and you die, you will go to a place called hell. It's not a gamble you ought to take. Check him out. Is he the truth? Is he the resurrection and the life? And then finally, you see them boldly praying in Jesus' name. Verse 23, verse 23. They were let go, Peter and John. Notice, they went to their own companions. They went to the church, and they reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord. Right there on your outline, you see it. They raised their voice to God in one accord. They said, Lord, grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Peter and John, weren't, when they were set free, they didn't go hide. They went right back to the church, told them everything that happened, and they had a great prayer meeting, united with one voice, and boldly they preached Jesus Christ. Warren Wiersbe has said, prayer is not an escape from our responsibility. It is our response to God's ability. I love that. 
It's not an escape from responsibility. It's our response to God's ability. We take it to him. I want to share a story with you. I really want you to pay attention, and then we're going to pray. Because what God wants from us is resurrection boldness. I'm going to read you a quote in a minute, but I want to tell you this. And I just ran across this story. It's kind of what prompted me and led me to this passage. I was going to do something else, but then I found this story, and so I, I, I just God impressed upon me to share this. This is a true story. How many have ever heard of Dietrich Bonhoeffer? Or some of you have. wrote an incredible book called The Cost of Discipleship. If you've never read the book, the classic, you need to get it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a Lutheran pastor during the time of Hitler. The guy I'm going to tell you about was one of his contemporaries. His name was Christian Rager. He was a pastor in the German confessing church under when Hitler, in the 1940s, during World War II, when Hitler was the despot that he was. They opposed Hitler. German confessing church opposed Hitler. Same church, same group that, that Bonhoeffer was part of. Pastor Rager's church organist turned him into the Nazis. Just to get that picture for a moment. His church organist turned him into the Nazis, that he was anti-Hitler. So they arrested him. They hauled him away to Dachau, one of the concentration camps. Now, he is a pastor. He's in this German concentration camp. Within a month, he had lost all his belief in God. He just, being, in that, being there in those conditions, he just, I can't believe in a loving God anymore. And he got a letter from his wife. I want you to open your Bibles back to Acts chapter 4. He got a letter from his wife. Remember, this is, at, this is at the point where he's given up. He gets a letter from his wife. At the end of the letter, she is typed Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 26. Read with me. The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ, or truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate. With the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. That's what she typed. That day, Rager was to be taken into a room. and He had two choices. You can give us the names of other people in your group. And if he gave those names, those people would be arrested and killed. But if he did not give those names, he himself would be tortured. The same day, he got the letter from his wife. As he's walking in, he's sitting in the ante room where he's going to go behind into the next room. They lead another minister out who's been in the concentration camp. He doesn't know the guy. He's never met him. Rager is up next. As the man passes Rager, he hands him a matchbook. Rager opens the matchbook. On the inside is printed Acts 4, 26 through 29. Here's what Rager said, quote, God did not rescue me and make my suffering easier. He simply assured me that he was alive and knew I was here. I learned something far greater. I learned to know the who of my life. He was enough to sustain me then and is enough to sustain me still. I simply know that God met me at Dachau. God never promised your life is going to be easy. Jesus promised it would be hard. But what God did promise is that I am alive. I need you to boldly preach the resurrection because there's only one life and only what's lived for Jesus will last forever. Bow your heads, please. Father, we just thank you for the simplicity of the gospel. Jesus died, was buried, and on the third day he rose from the dead. Lord, because he rose from the dead, we have hope. We have life both now and forever. I pray for the believers that are here. We would have resurrection boldness. Go out and share our Savior. Not just live and rock along through life, but live for Jesus. Share Him boldly. 
Lord, for anyone here who might be a skeptic, I pray they would honestly examine the claims of Jesus Christ. And Lord, if there's somebody here who wants to give their life to Christ for the first time, I pray they simply would say, Lord, thank you for dying for me. Thank you for rising from the dead. Forgive me. Save me. I want to be a Christian. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand as we sing, and if you'd like me to pray with you, I'll be down front.